everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Last week, we premiered part one of our Om Shinrikyo series, and we have to say we are thrilled to hear that you all enjoyed the subject matter as much as we did. Yeah, I honestly, like, I've been so excited to cover our first cult, and I think we picked a good one to start off with. Yeah, I mean, the feedback from everyone has been really great, and it's been cool to introduce quite a few of you guys to Om Shinrikyo, because I know a few of you said that you hadn't heard of it before, so... That's always cool to show you guys something new. Yeah, like I have to say, I knew this topic was going to be one that our listeners were going to enjoy when I saw the reaction everyone had during our YouTube premiere last week, like especially at the end. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad we had you all at the end of your seats. And I am very excited to continue on with the story because shit is about to get wild. So last week, we spoke about the humble beginnings of the man formerly known as Chizuo Matsumoto, the one and only Shoko Asahara. We went over his time in a school for the blind where he used his ability to see better than his peers to manipulate and threaten everyone that had the misfortune to cross his path. That's right. And again, we want to point out that this kind of behavior all started from a very early age. Even so, it's still hard to imagine that this man would someday be responsible for one of the deadliest attacks of its kind. We went over uh, a lot of different things last week, and while we normally start off with like a little recap, we're not going to do that today. Yeah, honestly, we have so much to get into, and we know a lot of you are eager to hear the rest of this, so we want to dive right in. Although we're both fully aware that it was a lot of info, so give part one a listen if you feel like you actually do need a recap. Yeah, because things are going to escalate really quickly this week. And literally in the worst way possible, too. This week, we're going to be talking about how exactly Om Shinrikyo was able to get away with gathering and storing dangerous chemicals for years. Exactly. And it wasn't that they did this without anyone noticing. They just did it with absolutely no consequences, or so it certainly seemed. We also saw the group dealing with those they deemed were a threat by killing them and their entire families. This is something that they continued to do as time went on. We're going to be talking about the various deadly attacks that Shoko Asahara ordered before the infamous subway sarin attacks and what led to that terrible day. And worry not, we'll be giving you a little breakdown of exactly what sarin is because honestly, it truly shows the evil that this man was capable of. We have so much to go over today that you're all just going to have to tune in because we maintain this is one of the wildest stories we've ever done. It's almost impossible to quickly summarize everything that the group has done up until this point. So many awful things have happened, and when we left off, they were victimizing tens of thousands of people. And that was just the start of it. We last left off with Shoko Asahara finally going after his dream of being the Japanese prime minister. His lack of actual political goals and overly theatric public displays didn't sit very well with the public, and he was very quickly defeated. Which makes me think there must be some alternate universe out there where Shoko Asahara actually won, which is a pretty horrifying thought. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, like him and his cronies did not stand a chance to begin with. In their minds, sure, they thought they were going to win, but the general public just couldn't get on board with a political party that constantly sang, danced, and wore paper mache Shoko Asahara masks. It's important to point out that a lot of people can fail politically and move on with their lives. However, when you have a man who thinks he's Christ running for politics and losing, it tends to not go over very well. 
in his eyes, there was absolutely no way that he could lose. His followers, of course, agreed. So this was a huge blow to not only his ego, which of course super dangerous, but to the cult itself. Like we mentioned last week, they actually lost quite a few members because of this. Shoko Asahara knew that he had to take it to the next level. It is said that he became increasingly bitter around this time, especially because this wasn't just an insult to him. In his mind, it was an insult to the entire group due to the fact that both he and 24 Aum Shinrikyo members lost their votes. We see this a lot with cult leaders before tragedy strikes. Jonestown comes to mind for me, but the cult leader sees the potential of themselves losing everything they've worked for, and that's when things start to get murderous. So the fact that Om Shinrikyo was already going around killing people just goes to show what a powder keg this group really was. At first, things seemed okay. The group actually appeared on various talk shows and were the subject of numerous articles. And we say the group, but really it was Shoko Asahara doing the majority of the talking while they just chanted his name or sometimes said nothing at all. By this point, the group's public image was continuing to go downhill, especially considering the amount of people who had seen someone they care about get taken advantage of. Exactly. If a cult completely ruins the life of someone you care about, you aren't going to take too kindly to seeing them singing and dancing in the street. People were starting to see through the group and see them for what they really were. Unfortunately, it would be years before something was really done, and by then, it would be far too late. The group purchased a dairy farm on an isolated piece of land, and around a thousand of its members moved there. This was considered by the group to be a huge honor. And if the whole isolated piece of land thing didn't cause any alarm bells to go off for you, then this next part certainly will. Yeah, this next bit is never a good sign. Shoko Asahara began to insist that each and every member of the group undergo extensive survival training. One of the documentaries I watched showed footage of group members going through this, and honestly, it is fucking terrifying. Basically, among everything else they did, they pushed people into extreme states of anxiety through sleep and food deprivation, as well as huge amounts of brainwashing, and then they made them meditate their way out. Like, it's horrifying. We often see groups like this use things like sleep and food deprivation to make sure their followers are in a state where they can't think straight. There's also countless reports that members were drugged, often with hallucinogens. He was creating the perfect little cultist on this compound, and the scary thing is, at this point, they were too far away for anyone to really see what was going on. Another tactic that they used was making sure that the leader was the only thing they could ever think of. Shoko Asahara would chant for hours on end, and when he wasn't talking, members were often forced to listen to recordings of him repeating some of the following phrases. Do your training, do your training, do your training. And do good deeds, do your meditation, do good deeds, do your meditation. And this next one is pretty chilling if you consider the context. The pain you are feeling is an illusion. This training will destroy the pain. And we remind you that oftentimes these tapes would go on for hours on end. Which is such a dangerous mind control technique. Essentially, the idea is to make it so members really can't focus on their own thoughts. Every time they try to think for themselves, they just end up hearing the leader's voice. You don't have the ability to question anything you're hearing because you cannot get away from it. Like, imagine hearing the same thing on loop for hours because chances are when it's turned off, it'll probably be replaying in your head for a long time. 
Especially if your brain is already barely working due to lack of sleep and food. Not to mention the drugs. Last week, we went over some of the various items that members purchased in order to get close to Shoko Asahara, including his bathwater, which they would happily not only drink, but pay $300 an ounce for. Yes, the 89 Asahara Vintage. It was a good year, very musky. I hate it. Oh, I hate it. I taste it. (laughs) One thing that we didn't mention last week that we wanted to talk about real quick was the special tea that members would buy in order to cure any ailments that troubled them. And this tea was made of only the finest and freshest flowers and herbs, right? No, it was made from the hair of Shoko Asahara. Oh my god, what do you think it tasted like? I don't even, like, I... It's bad enough when you get one hair in your food. Now you're... Dr- Ugh. It really doesn't bear thinking about. Oh my god. What I wonder is if they, like, drank it with the hair still in it, or if they, like, let it sit and soak, and then they, like, strained oh. it. I just... I have so many questions. I don't even want to know. Like, like, I just... We know what he looks like. He's got a lot of hair and, like, a big beard, and it's just like, I can't, I can't. Like, you have to be damn near insane from, like, the shit they've been going through. And we know for a fact he didn't exactly smell like head and shoulders. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. No, no minty freshness here. Oh, my God. Along with all of this, he once again began talking about the upcoming end of the world. This time, he was much more specific. Japan would fall and the world would end due to nuclear war. Oh, and also, he, of course, was the only one who could protect them. Yeah, you can't forget that bit. That's nice and convenient. Yeah. During these times, members were subjected to other methods of what they called survival training, including being forced to sit for hours in tubs of either scalding hot or ice-cold water. Things like this eventually led to the deaths of more members, Much like before, the dead members were cremated in secret and then never spoken of again. Because of this, we don't really know exactly how many people were killed during this time. In the 1995 ABC Australia documentary, Japan's Secret and Deadly Insurrectionist Cult, uh, they show a group of members coming out of an underground hole while, like, everyone's clapping for them and showering them with praise. Like, it is wild. And they'd been underground for six years days oh my god and one of the men who was involved in this he was a literal rocket scientist before he joined the group like it is shocking like this is such an extreme example of mind control like we mentioned the members were now living a life far removed from their families we see this a lot during interviews that members gave during the time they don't talk about their families at all they only speak of the people from before In 1992, Shoko Asahara decided to set his sights internationally and did something that surprised a lot of people. He made his way to Russia. Many Russians during this time were looking for a different kind of spiritualism, and much like it did to those in Japan, the idea of a simple life appealed to many of those in Russia. This next bit legitimately shocked me. Like, you guys, all of this is true. There is video proof in the documentary. And honestly, if you want to learn more about Om Shamrikyo and you're looking for something good to watch, I highly recommend it. It's older. Again, it's from 1995. But there's so much mind-blowing footage in that documentary. It's amazing. 
somewhere around 30,000 Russians joined Om Shinrikyo during this time. That was three times the amount of members that they had in Japan. They were a huge hit amongst the Russian public. Not only that, because of the amount of money the group was making off of its own members, they were able to donate a ton of cash towards Russian charities while also bribing the right people. By doing so, they ended up winning over many members of the government. Shockingly, they were also given permission to train with the Russian Paratroop Regiment. Shoko Asahara and some of his higher-up members also spent a ton of money to get to shoot different guns and play with tanks. I honestly wrote the words, there is footage of this in my notes so many times during this part. Because, like, it's one of those things that, like, if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I probably wouldn't believe that. The group was also very interested in learning how to manufacture their own assault rifles. They smuggled an AK-47 back to Japan so that they could reverse engineer it. Their goal was to mass produce them for themselves. However, out of a thousand attempts, they only succeeded once. It wasn't only the Russian military that they were getting friendly with either. Around this time, they began to recruit members who worked in Japan's defense forces. These members began to steal secret files for the group, files containing information on biological weapons. Shoko Asahara was still harboring a lot of resentment about his short-lived failure of a political career, so it was around this time that he thought, if you can't beat him, kill him. This time, their target was the Emperor of Japan. They planned to stage a coup and have him murdered as a result. However, they lacked the organizational skills to accomplish anything even half as complicated as this. The higher-up members of the group, along with Shoko Asahara, began to quickly realize this and they began to focus on recruiting people with the kind of skill set that would help the group run more seamlessly. So this to me shows that he had the ability to see that he couldn't do this on his own. Like, he had people that were his muscle, he had his scientists, and he had people who kept the group going. Like, everyone had a role, and you can see the group become more dangerous as they become better organized. That's why I think, you know, a lot of cult leaders are just products of absolute delusion, and they truly, truly believe the things that they say. With this guy, I think it's less of that and more that he's being very strategic about just bringing his own psychotic plans to light and he's like I can't do this by myself I'm nearly blind what if I get a lot of other people to do it for me and it's interesting to me because like you saw his ability to like work with like use people the way that he Mm kind of needed to from the age of six yeah so he became pretty much an expert on it honestly and based upon the methods he used to keep his group under his control I would imagine that he had found the knowledge of like maybe CIA like torture techniques and brainwashing techniques and stuff because I feel like this isn't stuff you just come up with by yourself right like you have to your brain's got to be in a very specific place to be able to come up with that many different types of torture all on your own Uh mind you I have a theory on that oh really um I could be wrong I'm just guessing uh he had a lot of uh people who were like kind of ex-military or had ex certain types of training that's um, true. And I think maybe his, like, people who were his muscle probably had some experience with either, like, gang-type stuff or the ones that were the more kind of, like, scholarly ones. At mm-hmm. least they they knew something. 
Yeah, they would have acted as like his advisors, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah, but I definitely he he had people that knew exactly how to torture people. I'm sure he didn't have to think of that that much. Mm hmm. Between 1990 and 1993, hostility towards anyone who wanted to leave the group had begun to end in threats and even murder. On one occasion, they attempted an anthrax attack on the public by spraying deadly spores from the roof of their Japan headquarters. However, they failed, and the worst that luckily happened was that a bunch of people complained about a bad smell. They also continued to attack various members of the public who spoke out against them. An assassination list was found containing the names of a ton of different people. Some of these included the leaders of various other groups that Shoko Asahara considered a threat. The list included the name of a cartoonist who had published satirical drawings of the group. An attempt on his life was made in 1993. Luckily, he survived. During that year, countless members of the public brought forward evidence to the authorities that clearly showed Om Shinrikyo members behaving in some pretty concerning ways. They were moving large barrels of chemicals into buildings that they had purchased for storage. These buildings were often covered up and made to look like construction sites. They essentially went to the police and were like, this is not a religious group, look at what they are doing, and the police just ignored these reports completely. This was possibly in part due to the fact, like we mentioned last week, it was frowned upon to speak against new religious groups. But we also need to mention that by this point, the group was not only bribing members of the police force, they were recruiting them. The people who filed complaints about the group and were ignored were incredibly angry, and rightfully so. This led to several small protests and further threats of lawsuits. It didn't take long until these angry members of the public realized that the police weren't going to do anything, so they took matters into their own hands. One evening, a group of angry protesters flushed Shoko Asahara out in the middle of the night and pursued him while he was driven away in his Mercedes. In his Mercedes that he bought by preaching about how materialism was mm -hmm. bad. I just want to point that little bit out there. Yeah. Like, what a dirtbag. He, I'm sad to say, made his way to safety, and nothing really became of this, or at least not immediately. Two weeks later, police finally decided to do something about the countless complaints and ordered that city inspectors follow up. However, during that span of two weeks, the group was tipped off and all the evidence was removed before any of the inspections could happen. This led Shoko Asahara to believe that for the time being, the group was no longer safe in Japan and he once again set his sights elsewhere. This time, he chose Australia. This would allow him to not only further isolate his members, but also give his scientists the chance to get some work done. In September of 1993, the group purchased a sheep farm and the sheep that lived on it in Western Australia. Interestingly, they were targeted immediately by customs agents and two group members were fined for illegal transportation of chemicals. However, if they had checked the 30 sake bottles that the group had brought with them, they would have quickly realized that they all contained a deadly prototype to sarin nerve gas that the group was planning to test on the sheep. Now, okay, I'm not afraid to admit that prior to this, I knew basically nothing about sarin gas or what it was, so we wanted to take some time to talk about it so you could all really see just how truly horrifying this was. Charlotte did a bunch of research for this episode about it, so I'm going to let her take over and explain to us exactly what this stuff is. So it's definitely got a very interesting but super dark history. Sarin was one of the very first nerve agents and is still considered one of the most deadly toxins known to man. 
The location of this substance's humble beginning is probably not going to surprise too many of you given its diabolical nature. In 1936, German chemist Gerhard Schrader was looking for a solution to a pest problem that was plaguing German farms. Innocent enough, right? Yes. No, like yeah. noble, like, even, you yeah. might say. Well, given the year and the location, you may have already put two and two together and gotten Nazis. Uh. After accidentally poisoning himself with one of the earliest forms of sarin, a substance called Tabin, Schrader discovered that not only does it affect weevils and insects, but pretty much any other living thing. Schrader's bosses informed authorities of this new substance, and the Nazis were like, well, looky, looky what we have here, and they paid Schrader 50,000 Deutschmark for his discovery. In 1938, the Nazis had begun manufacturing sarin gas on a huge scale and had weaponized it. In its purest form, it can be fatal after being exposed to only a few drops. It is colorless, odorless, and tasteless, so it can be easily hidden in food or water without the consumer realizing until it's too late. It can also be just as deadly in gaseous form when inhaled. With the right knowledge and the right place, it's also relatively easy to manufacture using fairly common household chemicals. That is terrifying. Right? There are, like, some, like, more, um, what's the word, controlled substances that can be used to create it, but simple things like rubbing alcohol are one of the ingredients, so it's not difficult at all. You probably put um, yourself on so many lists just, like, looking oh, up the stuff for this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's also, it's so nasty. Sarin poison is anything but painless. It essentially causes your muscle tissue to spasm uncontrollably, causing extreme pain. A person exposed to sarin can experience rapid breathing and heartbeat, vomiting, blindness, blurred vision, and debilitating muscle spasms. Nearly all deaths after exposure to sarin occur in under 10 minutes. However, the bright side, if you can even call it that, is that if you do manage to survive the first 10 minutes, there's a higher chance you will survive, but not without lifelong after effects. It is treatable. A deep atropine injection, which is something that's available in most hospitals, can counteract the effects. Because of its awful and notorious history as a chemical weapon, most countries in today's age have agreed to destroy their supplies of sarin. Or, you know, that's what they've said. Without getting too deep into how evil this substance is, even Hitler himself had reservations about using it as a weapon against Allied forces during World War II. Wow. That being said... Oh. <laughs> I spoke too soon. Yeah. Countless people still died in Nazi sarin factories where they were forced to work as slaves, often being exposed to deadly leaks. And obviously, another deadly poison gas, Zyklon B, was authorized for use in Auschwitz to murder over a million people. So, like... I shouldn't have to say this, but Hitler is not, not off the hook here. <laughs> no. Um, that all being said, if you do want to learn more about Saren and hear me ramble on a little bit more about its long and horrifying history, uh, check out our Patreon because I'm going to do a deeper dive this week and get into a bit more of the nitty gritty of Saren's past and basically how it brings out the, um, uh, the absolute worst in literally anyone who gets their hands on it. So you can come check that out if you'd like. And honestly, this stuff is truly fascinating. So if you're the kind of weirdo like us who finds this kind of stuff morbidly just 
interesting. Like, I highly <laughs> suggest checking out the video Charlotte's doing. Like, I'm personally really excited to check it out because it's, yeah, this stuff is wild. Well, and you know what? If you like this kind of content, uh, definitely let us know because I think there's a few other things we could do, like, little extra deep dives into. So, like, that could be something that we we do so let us know what you think absolutely don't be afraid to reach out with that kind of stuff it's the grim curriculum at gmail.com so say hi and let us know what you want us to cover you betcha all right so let's pick back up with where we left things at the sheep farm during this time the group set up a number of fake corporations and used them to buy large amounts of chemicals that they needed to make sarin gas they began to find ways to increase their production and before long they were stockpiling it They purchased a building that was officially listed as an office building. This project was led by a 30-year-old chemist named Masami Tsuchiya. He's another member that was interviewed in that 1995 documentary, and I found a lot of what he said very interesting. First and foremost, like, whenever he talks about Shoko Asahara, he talks about him with so much love. Like, that's the only way I can describe it, even after the attacks. Like, you can tell he regards him very, very highly. And, I mean, I'm all for, like, you know what? It was right for me at the time, but it's not right now. It's like, no, no, no. That's what you say about, like, ex-boyfriends, not a cult you were a part of. Right, or, like, veganism. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it got me through the time, but I've changed my mind or whatever. That's fine. But, like, mm, (laughs) cults, man. Yeah, it's not really, like, something you, like, dip your toes into to check out because it's, like, you're 21 and it's a wild Thursday. Exactly, exactly. So he also, he talks about why he was intrigued by the group in the first place. So before his arrest, he was quoted saying, I felt a sense of impending crisis in a modern civilization. I was very interested in combining modern science with spirituality, a union for science and religion. I was looking for this kind of group. And again, we want to point out that this was an extremely educated man. You can tell by the way that he speaks that he's eloquent and he's well put together. It's almost hard to imagine him involved in something like this. They continued to test the sarin on what remained of their sheep, and before long they were ready to use it on humans. By that point, they had spent around $50 million to develop the deadly chemical. They weren't quite ready to use the sarin on a large scale, so they set their sights on the Japanese city of Matsumoto on a particularly hot summer night when most people were asleep with their windows open. At around 11 p.m. on June 27, 1994, a refrigeration truck that had been prepared specifically for the attack drove into the usually peaceful apartment block. A specially designed system was built into the truck so that it could be used for not only carrying the deadly sarin, but to spray it into the air. The reason this spot was chosen was because it was the home of three judges who had recently been assigned to oversee a land claim that was filed against the group. However, this was a huge apartment block, and we just want to point out that they did this knowing they would kill people who were just trying to sleep in their homes. Exactly. It's kind of morbid to point out, but up until this point, they've killed people directly involved with upsetting them along with their families. Now, they've moved on to taking down whoever happens to just be around. This attack ended up taking the lives of numerous people and injuring hundreds. One survivor reports that first his vision began to distort, he then became nauseous and started to experience auditory hallucinations. His wife was also badly injured in the attack. Sadly, her injuries affected her permanently and she was no longer able to live a normal life. 
one of the things that he talks about in his interview is how if the police had properly investigated this, that the subway sarin attacks would have never happened. An innocent man was suspected, and the police spent a needless amount of money and resources focusing on him. This poor man, like his wife, was actually in a coma because of the attack, and they were trying to pin everything on him. Oh man, but you really can't help but wonder about this because at this point, countless people have complained about the group and have tried to file reports saying that they are clearly storing chemicals and doing a load of other shady things. Which makes me wonder if they actually even thought it was this guy or if he was just a scapegoat and they just for some unknown reason didn't think that things were going to get worse from there. And that being said, the cult was never investigated for this attack. This only led to further outrage from the public, obviously. I know I keep bringing up this documentary, but it was one of my favorite ones that I watched and there was so much amazing footage in it. But they showed a bunch of these protests basically that were happening against the group and they show people yelling at them and saying things to the members like, how can you be free if you can't even see your families and your children? Mm -hmm. And you can see people are emotional, like they are crying, they are scared and they're desperate because they can all see this isn't going to end well. And it just seems like no one is actually willing to stop them. Like it is horrifying. Mm Mm-hmm. They also show a man who runs up to the camera and he talks about how his sister and her kids are being hidden from him by the group. And his face is like blurred during all of this. And this woman runs up to him and starts yelling at him like, don't talk to the cameras. You're going to get recognized. So like, oh, my God. Yeah, like I can only assume she doesn't want them to see him speaking out against them because like then have them target him exactly. and then yeah. like they people knew that like speaking out against them was dangerous the uh, scale of it is like really mind-blowing like it it starts to sound like some kind of like psychological thriller movie honestly it really does because you're like seeing it happen and it's like climbing and climbing and climbing and it's like you know what's about to happen but it's like no one's doing anything Mm -hmm. another thing that it shows and i'm sorry i just have to keep going here because so much of this just showed like the sheer reality of it all but like this really stuck with me they show this like younger woman and she's being carried away by like three or four people and she's screaming and she is crying like screaming and it turns out she got caught kidnapping her own father jesus he wouldn't sign over the family estate to the group they got him back i guess and her father was threatening to expose her in front of everyone for what she had done like well i can't imagine i mean japan and it's a very like honor-based society yes And for her to sort of betray her family, her father like this, I can't even imagine what a big fucking deal. I mean, it is in any society, but what a huge deal that would have been. Like how ashamed they must have been as well. Oh my god. And I mean to like also trying to get the money from them is bad enough, but you kidnapped your dad. Literally. Yeah. Like you could have just left him out of it. Like this is a choice you've made. Like fuck off to your little cult or whatever. But like no, now you've started to like drag your other family members into it kicking and screaming. It's it's just unreal to me. All of this had been going on for years at this point, so this wasn't just sudden outrage. People were being victimized by the group for years. Many had lost everything after the family members joined and used inheritances, savings, whatever other money they could keep bringing in to support the group they believed so much in. And the scary thing is, is that there were countless other chemical-related attacks during this time. Many of them were a lot smaller in comparison to the Matsumoto apartment attack, but these smaller attacks had a number of purposes. 
They wanted to punish those who spoke out against them, yes. But they also wanted to test the sarin on human subjects as many times as they could to ensure that when the time came, a sarin attack could be made to be as deadly as possible. At the end of 1994, members of the group broke into the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries building and attempted to steal information regarding the manufacturing of ammunition and tanks. During December to January, a member of the group, Masami Tsuchiya, who we're going to talk about later, was able to create almost 200 grams of deadly VX poison. VX is so dangerous that as little as a drop of it on your skin can be enough to kill you. This attack cost three people their lives. In another instance, a man who the group suspected was a spy was followed on the street by numerous members. One approached him from behind and sprinkled some of the deadly chemical on his neck. When the man realized what had happened, he chased the group until he lost consciousness. He died 10 days later. His cause of death was revealed to be a poison by an organophosphate pesticide, but the group was not investigated. A lot of these attacks were not attributed to the group until after they were all arrested, which again, if you have the sudden surge in chemical attacks happening, maybe take a look at the shady-ass cult that people saying is hiding chemicals. In February of 1995, cult members kidnapped Kiyoso Karia, who is the brother of a former member. It was believed that he had helped his brother escape the group, something that they didn't take too kindly to. Days prior to the attacks, he reported getting phone calls from numerous people that not only demanded to know where his sister was, but also threatened his life. He actually left a note saying that if something happened to him, it was Om Shinrikyo. They took the 69-year-old man to a compound near Mount Fuji and killed him. They then cremated his body and scattered his ashes near a lake. We want to point something really important out right now. We don't want all of this to come across like Om Shinrikyo was full of murderous villains, because that simply wasn't the case. The majority of members had absolutely no clue what was happening and essentially just lived a life devoted to the group. It was mainly the higher up members of the group that were privy to these attacks and were a part of them directly. The average Om member had absolutely no clue. I mean, they were unknowingly funding the attacks by buying bathwater and other goodies, but they had no clue it was being used to orchestrate mass murder. Up until this point, complaints had been ignored and countless murders had been left unsolved. However, by March of 1995, the amount of attacks and murders made them impossible to ignore. Finally, it's honestly shocking how long they were allowed to get away with things before someone actually stepped in. The authorities planned to raid the various factories that the group was running. However, three days before the raids were planned, the group was tipped off and Shoko Asahara ordered the factories to be cleared of any evidence. He then told his higher-up members to prepare for something big. You never want to hear a cult leader say, hey, we're planning something big. Right, because it's probably not a surprise party. No, it's not a pizza party. No, it's not. The Tokyo subway system is notorious for being incredibly packed. It serves up to one million people a day, which is like mind-blowing to me. It really is. During rush hour, the subway cars tend to be so packed that once you get in, it's nearly impossible to move. March 20th, 1995 was a particularly busy day. A national holiday was right around the corner and many people were eager to start their workday and get it finished with. The group chose this time of day due to the fact that as many people as possible would be on board the train when they hit. Ten men were involved in these attacks. Half would act as a getaway driver while the rest would release chemicals onto the train. 
Five members of Om Shinrikyo boarded five separate trains. They each carried two small plastic bags carefully wrapped in newspaper, as well as an umbrella with a specially sharpened tip. One of these men was a senior medical officer named Ikuo Hayashi. Hayashi, who was the son of a doctor himself, was well-respected in his field. His friends and family were shocked when in 1990 he left everything and everyone behind to join the group. Like, so much for the Hippocratic Oath, you know, do no harm and all that. That's there. a pretty big jump. Oh, man. We don't want to get too, too ahead of ourselves because we will go over this when we cover the trials. But we want to point out that along with the attacks, Hayashi was also known as one of the higher up members who would participate in torturing those they suspected to be no longer loyal to the cause. You know, maybe I was wrong, I think. Maybe I was right and this is right too. But like, I think the answer to your question is even more terrifying. They were good at torturing because he was a doctor. That's true. And actually, it's funny because I was watching a very interesting video today on uh, psychopaths, like true psychopaths, and they tend to gravitate towards positions of power, right? So doctors, um, CEOs, things like that. So I guess it just makes sense, really. Yeah, from doctor to torturer, right? Oh, awful. Well, as we mentioned before, this led to the deaths of quite a few people. It's wild to see that a well-respected doctor who seems to be doing very well in life can go from that to the top torturer of a doomsday cult in just a few short years. Another one of the men involved directly in releasing the deadly chemical was Kenichi Hirose, who was involved in the group's chemical brigade. He would actually end up hospitalized due to serum poisoning himself, but he would ultimately survive. Yasuo Hayashi was among one of the older members of the group's Ministry of Science and Technology at the ripe old age of 37. And we're not saying that 37 is actually old because that is no. not allowed here. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, we're just uh, saying that to draw more to the, or draw like kind of attention to the fact that most of these men, in fact, nearly all of these men were quite young. Most of them were in their late 20s to early 30s. His story is a little different than the rest of the other men because he was told to be part of the attack as a loyalty test to Shoko Asahara, who had suspicions that Hayashi was a spy. Interestingly enough, though, he actually carried three packets of sarin with him rather than two like everybody else. It's likely that he asked for the extra packet to further prove his loyalty to the group. Toru Toyota and Masato Yokoyama were the last two of the five men who were chosen to be a part of the attack. When the time was right, the men dropped their packets of sarin and punctured them with the tips of their umbrellas. They then quickly got off of the train cars before anyone even knew something was wrong. The men then joined up with each of their getaway drivers and were gone. Hirose released his sarin at Okanomizu Station. A few stops later, two people were removed because they weren't feeling well, but the train wasn't actually cleared. At Ogikubo Station, a substantial amount of new passengers boarded the subway car, not knowing that they were walking into a space that was filling with poison. One person died as a result of this part of the attack. Masato Yokoyama released his sarin gas at Yotsuya Station and took off for his getaway car. Thankfully, he was only able to puncture one of his packets. People began to report a foul smell, which resulted in the evacuation of that particular train car. Staff found the packets and removed them, but the train continued to run for almost two hours after the sarin was released. 
We want to just very quickly clarify something that some of you might be wondering about. We mentioned earlier on in the episode that Saren is odorless, but we just talked about people reporting a foul smell. So Charlotte, can you explain to us how that's actually possible? Yeah, absolutely. So Saren is odorless when it's in its purest form. And because Om Shinrikyo weren't all like, you know, chemists, although they did have a couple of chemists, and but they didn't necessarily have exact ingredients because there's actually 12 dis- different known recipes for Saren. Oh, wow. Um, so the Saren that Om Shinrikyo had made was far from pure. And because of that, it did give off an odor, which not only led to people realizing, luckily, that something was happening faster, but it also meant that the sarin itself was substantially less potent. Yasuo Hayashi was successfully able to puncture all three of his packets and did so at the Akihabara station. People started to feel ill almost instantly. One man saw a packet and kicked it off of the platform. This resulted in the deaths of four people who were waiting at that station. No one cleaned the train car and it continued to run full of people who had no clue that there was a puddle of deadly sarin on the floor. People on that train car began to panic and realize something terrible was happening, so they pushed the emergency stop button. It was reported that when the doors finally opened, numerous unconscious people fell out of the train car. This train had made its way through five different stops before it was stopped. Eight people were killed. While all of this was happening, panic was beginning to spread throughout the subway system. People were sick everywhere. Staff very quickly saw that something was wrong when countless people just began to collapse at various stations. They attempted to evacuate, but it was too late. Thirteen people had lost their lives and 6,000 were injured. This is obviously a huge number, but it could have been a lot higher. The attacks were not nearly as successful as Shoko Asahara had hoped they would be. The sarin wasn't as pure, like we said, uh, and they expected it to be a lot purer, but they had those production issues. If the sarin had been more pure like they wanted, thousands of people, possibly more, would have lost their lives that day. Numerous people reported a loss of vision. Many were blinded for life. The entire scene was absolute chaos. There are photos and videos of this, and you can really see the sheer terror that they caused. And you have to remember, these poor people had absolutely no fucking idea what was happening. This is one of the safest cities in the world, and it's suddenly under attack. One survivor, Sakei Ito, reported in an interview that everything seemed normal until people started looking down and coughing. Before he knew it, he saw almost everyone having trouble breathing, and shortly after he saw numerous people fall down and start convulsing. And his life was spared due to sheer luck. He had chosen to take the car next to the one that was hit. I can't even imagine what it must have been like to just, you know, you're like looking through the window at the next car, like whatever, and then you see everyone on the car dying by some invisible force and wondering what the fuck is going on and like are you wondering if you're gonna be next do you think there's zombies like what the fuck is happening that's that is true horror and then it's like do you try to help them do you not try to help them because you're worried about yourself and everybody on your train car the ptsd survivors must have fucking or must still be dealing with i can't even imagine absolutely The documentaries that we talked about have quite a few interviews from the survivors. They also show an interview with Siju Takahashi, whose husband died in the attacks. 
She talks about how he picked a packet up and tried to clean up the spilled liquid so he could help, and he ended up dying as a result. And like that this, kills me, right? Like, like, and oh my god, like she's she talks about it and it's just like your heart breaks for her because this shouldn't so have happened. Sad. No, absolutely not. And because like Japanese people tend to be very courteous. You always hear of them like tidying up after like sports games and stuff. He was like, oh, there's just, there's some mess. I'm going to throw it in the garbage because that's what you do. That's respectful. And then losing his life because of it. The the thing to really keep in mind is like we mentioned, like Japan is, it's still considered a very safe, like Tokyo especially, considered a very safe place to live. The crime rate is very low. So these aren't people that are like used to taking the subway and crazy shit happens every day. No. They're used to like nothing happening probably and then all of a sudden there's a fucking nightmare unfolding in front of them. Mm-hmm. So, so tragic because you have the absolutely unnecessary deaths of these people but like you said, thousands who are injured, many for life, many physically, many mentally, a lot of them both. Mm-hmm. Like the kind of emotional trauma that this would have on you for years is unreal like imagine trying to take the subway after this oh you never would no you never would no and that's such a huge mode of transportation yes yeah absolutely like none of this should have happened like shoko asahara should never have had the power that he did but the police should have paid attention to all the complaints there were so many opportunities to stop them and it just never happened and as a result thousands of lives were affected Many people had no clue what happened and they just continued on to work. They had no idea that they had been exposed to something so deadly until they actually saw it later on in the evening on the news. And they were the lucky ones. Witnesses report that the entire scene looked like a battlefield. People were laying on the ground, some convulsing and others not moving at all. The purpose of the attack was to divert attention away from Om Shinrikyo, Clearly, that's not what happened. During the week following the attack, the group was finally exposed for what they really were. Even those who were worried that Om Shinrikyo had bad intentions were shocked by what was really going on. Police raided their headquarters and found various kinds of explosives and chemical weapons. Kinda like the ones that the public had been warning about the entire time. Not only that, they found a whole ass Russian military helicopter. Like, how, yeah, just smuggle a helicopter into the country. Like, Jesus. And oh, not only that, they also found enough sarin to potentially kill up to four million people. And they found drugs, mostly hallucinogens, as well as a ton of money and countless Om Shinrikyo members who had been locked up and detained against their will. Shoko Asahara said that the chemicals were because they used it as fertilizer. However, he didn't have an explanation for the fact that throughout the compound, he had various ways to kill people basically everywhere you looked. Throughout the course of six weeks, close to 200 members of the group were arrested and questioned. Many of them claimed to have absolutely no idea what was going on. One of the former members that was interviewed that stuck with me was Akatoshi Hirosue, who says that it actually took him years to accept that the group was responsible for the attacks. Like, it was so difficult for the average member to believe that their group that preached so much about peace was responsible for something this heinous. In the interview, he says, Those who believe that killing people could lead to their salvation are widely known about now, but until the sarin incident occurred, normal members had no idea about that way of thinking at all. 
Which is why we wanted to point out earlier that the average member had absolutely no clue what was happening. They legitimately didn't know. However, the average member of the public thought very differently. To them, it was clear that the culprits were involved in Om Shinrikyo. After all, countless people had seen them manufacturing and storing dangerous chemicals for years with no consequences. And if things weren't already chaotic enough, they were about to get worse. The media began to station themselves outside various own buildings in hope of getting footage of the members that remained. And they all wanted to know one thing. Where the hell was Shoko Asahara? It seemed as if he had vanished after the attacks. In fact, despite the buildings being watched 24-7, he was never spotted. Despite all this, the violence only continued. On March 30th, the chief of the National Police Agency was shot four times while standing outside of his home. Luckily, he survived, but whoever tried to kill him was never found. Om Shinrikyo was suspected of being responsible for ordering the hit, and most still believe that they were the culprits. And I mean, it makes sense. It fits their M.O. On April 23rd, the head of Ohm's Ministry of Science was stabbed to death outside their headquarters while in the presence of over 100 reporters. The incident was caught on camera, which helped lead to the conviction of a high-ranking member of the Yakuza. Things just got worse from there when a burning bag containing enough hydrogen cyanide to kill 10,000 people was found and extinguished in another subway station. Throughout the summer of 1995, this happened numerous times. So the attacks weren't just a one-and-done thing. You can really see how this led to more violence and terror, which is exactly what Shoko Asahara wanted. Numerous copycat crimes happened during this time, one of which targeted a Boeing 747 plane. Mind you, he wasn't leading or ruling over anyone at this point. He was just gone, and while members were arrested, yes, none of the men who were actually involved in the attack were in custody. On May 16th, Shoko Asahara was finally found during a raid. He was hiding out within the walls of one of his compounds and was arrested. That same day, the governor of Tokyo received a strange package in the mail. His secretary opened it and it exploded. She ended up losing all of the fingers on her hand. The package was proven to have come from the group. Honestly, we could do almost an entire episode just talking about all the various attacks that they were responsible for because there are so many that we didn't even get a chance to touch on last week. But like, it goes to show just how violent they really were. Mm -hmm. The public wanted to see them punished, and at this point, so did the authorities. Shoko Asahara was charged with over 20 counts of murder, along with 16 other offenses. At that time, prosecution argued that he ordered the attacks so that he could overthrow the government and rule Japan. They also charged him for the deaths of the Sakamoto family and the Matsumoto attacks. His defense argued that he knew nothing about these attacks and that they were done by the other members who had chosen to do what they did, not because they were ordered to. Shoko Asahara said numerous times that a man so close to blindness like himself was not capable of such evil and that he was absolutely innocent. I hate this. I know. It's like, like how <sighs> dare you? At the end of the day, at least own what you did. Like, don't come mm -hmm. up with, like, bullshit excuses and blame everybody else. This would not have happened without him at the helm of it. Like, that's just yeah, a fact. I, exactly. So, like, pretending he's some frail man, it wasn't fooling anybody. Thank goodness. Many of his members turned against him and said that this was absolutely not the case. It was all orchestrated by him. Asahara seemed relatively cooperative overall and resigned from his post as leader of the group in order to focus on the trial. 
partway through, he stopped speaking, even to his family, and would only quietly mumble in court or just sit there with his eyes closed. He was evaluated by a team of psychiatrists who deemed him mentally fit. He was willing to speak to them. He didn't say much, but enough for them to see that he was pretty intelligent and he knew what was happening. The trial, often called the trial of the century by Japanese media, lasted for years. Unfortunately, unlike some of the other cases that we've covered in the past, hello, Danny Rowling, uh, <laughs> we have very little information about what actually happened in that courtroom. So we aren't going to go over the trial in great detail because honestly, a lot of the info out there is really, really hard to verify. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know how it ended. Shoko Asahara was found guilty and sentenced to death along with many of his senior members. Before his death, he woke up and ate breakfast like he normally would. In Japan, the execution date is decided a few days in advance, but the inmate is not told until that very morning. So when Shoko Asahara was told that he would be put to death that day, he initially he said nothing. He received no counseling, but was asked what he wanted done with his body. After some prodding, he decided he wanted it to be left to his fourth daughter. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, thanks. You did nothing for me, Dad, but thanks for the body. Yeah. Shoko Asahara was hanged from the neck until he was dead, and that was the end of one of the most dangerous cult leaders that, until now, you've probably never heard of. I am honestly shocked that they aren't more well-known. Like, I understand this happened really far away from us, but it wasn't that long ago, and the end result was millions of people living in fear. To be fair, I hadn't heard of them until, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago. And even though, like, I am a child of the 90s, and I do remember, like, a lot of fairly big events that happened. Like, I do remember as much as I was really young, like, my mom saying that, like, oh, uh, Princess Diana has died and, like, things like that. Yeah. But I do not remember, you know, hearing about this on the news or anything no, like that. No, me either. And honestly, um, I'm curious about you guys as well. How I know a lot of you were saying that you had never heard of the group, but does anyone remember seeing them in the news? Does anyone who was maybe more aware of what was going on at the time? I was very young. I know Charlotte was very young, too. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, was this something that was talked about? Because from what I'm seeing, like, it wasn't as much as you would think. Mm -hmm. for, for such um, an attack on this scale where, you know, so many people were hurt, like, I, I wonder... Because, like, the world was sort of obsessed with cults at this point, and still kind of are, honestly, just yeah. along with every other true crime thing, really. But, uh, yeah, let us know. Did you Do you remember hearing about it on the news or anything like that? I'm curious. And the other reason why it shocks me is because, like, what a story. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it really got out of hand real fast. Oh, my God, right? Like, I mean, the, the first part that we did, it starts off with friggin' bath water and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and then... You know, we get right into this one and things are crazy right off the bat. I guess it's a little bit different from a lot of cults. They affected people outside of the cult. I would hazard to say most cults kind of only affect their own members, which is still not right by yeah. any means because a lot of people are um, like conned into it and brainwashed, obviously, as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. But typically it doesn't get that out of hand you're you know? absolutely right usually the violence is kind of kept within the cult within, whereas here yeah. like there was violence within the cult but it was mostly just everyone else that he was after 
Yeah, it's like, I'm I'm gonna be a psychopath, and it's about to become everybody's problem. <laughs> exactly. So, speaking of everybody's problem, mm-hmm. just because Shoko Asahara was gone doesn't mean that Om Shinrikyo was. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So, please join us next week for a bonus third part to this series, where we're gonna talk uh, a bit more about what happened to the other men involved in the attacks. And also, what the hell happened to Shoko Asahara's wife? Like, where was she during all of this? Because she was around, and it sure seems like she was involved. It's been a fascinating series to cover, I have to say. I was honestly shocked to see how far this story goes, because for a long time, I thought it ended with Shoko Asahara, but we're gonna see next week that it lived on, and I think the extent of it is honestly just gonna surprise people. Mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. Um, and yes, all that being said, thank you all so much for your support on this series. This is, uh, our first coverage of a cult, as many of you know, uh, and we've been thrilled to bring it to you. So much fun. And like we mentioned, <laughs> Charlotte is doing a behind the scenes bonus feature where she's going to talk about Saren further. And I honestly recommend checking it out because A, it's fascinating and B, who doesn't want Charlotte to talk some science to them? Like I said, I'm always happy to talk people's ears off. So, yeah. Um, But on the Patreon, uh, it is an amazing way to support the podcast. We do have lots and lots of content there already for you to enjoy. And patrons always get the latest news and episode topics before anybody else on the internet does. Now, uh, as for the patrons, Uh we made a boo-boo. Yeah, we sure did. Yeah, so, okay, we made the mistake of recording really late last week. Like, it was way past our bedtimes when we were done. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, we realized we forgot to thank our beautiful and lovely Grim VIP patrons. So, from our hearts to yours, a big, fat, Canadian sorry to you all. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, guys. We are not going to forget you this week after all of that. So we want to thank Lisa, Pink Flamingo 20, Brian, Hillary, and Mudkip. You guys are amazing, and we do appreciate you so, so much. We really do. And we're going to be picking our next movie night movie soon. So if you're interested in hanging out with us, make sure you sign up on the Patreon page for the Cinephile tier. Also, thank you to everybody who's been checking out the merch. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who's been supporting us on YouTube. Uh, YouTube has been one of our most challenging platforms to grow on. So if you aren't subscribed to us there, please make sure you do. Uh, Watch some videos, leave some likes and some comments. Please those algorithm gods for us. And just in case you didn't know, we are now available across all of the podcasting platforms. Yeah, so until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum News by following us on social media. We're going to link, of course, our personal socials down below with some other fun links for you guys. Thanks for listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. And um, Siberian bears sometimes dig up dead bodies for food and they use cemeteries as their refrigerators. Oh, frozen snack. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.